0: Visit
1: bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024.
2: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and this is the final episode of our six part series of The World in 2018. And now we get to finish it off by looking into the always fascinating worlds of science and technology. I'm joined by the editor of The World in 2018, Daniel Franklin. Hello there, Daniel.
3: Hello, Anne. Thanks for having me with you again. So we'll be looking at some new breakthroughs and we'll also be examining
4: tech trends and seeing how they will have an impact
3: on the way that we live and work.
4: 5G will be 10 gigabits per second. That's fast enough to deliver a high-definition movie
1: to your phone in one second. Usually when you have an algorithmic decision made about you, there's no, one, there's no human being to appeal to.
5: You know, you should expect to see lots more gene therapies arriving this year. It's happening. And as you've been hearing across these world in specials,
2: Daniel and I went off to Hong Kong and to China to get the view from across the globe.
6: What if the technology is so advanced that they know exactly who I am, who I'm talking to? And just like a big brother, you don't know where it is.
3: And of course, we'll keep our eye on the rise of artificial intelligence. Will a robot be taking your job anytime soon? Machines doing most of the work, very few people. The robots are coming, the robots are coming. Anne, you spoke to a number of people about different aspects of artificial intelligence and how it might affect the world of work. With machines and AIs being able to do all sorts of interesting things, where does that leave us humans?
2: Yes, and one of the most disruptive forces on the horizon in the world of work, I think, is the rise of artificial intelligence and its impact on us mere mortals. To learn more about the potential risks and rewards of machines getting better at some things than we are, I started off by speaking to our resident experts. They're Tim Cross, the economist science correspondent, and Hal Hodson, our technology correspondent. Tim, you've written a piece for The World in 2018 that looks at the possibility of humans getting replaced by machines that can work more efficiently than than we can. Uh, What are the examples of jobs being performed better at the moment by machines than than humans?
0: Well, I mean, it depends how far back you want to go. The job of uh, mining coal out of the ground is done much better these days by machines than humans. You know, we're all fairly familiar with the idea that machines can replace humans for some physical tasks. What's, I guess, newer and what's causing a lot of worries is the idea that they might replace humans for cognitive tasks as well. So I think the jobs that are more at risk, of course, you know, nobody really knows, but I think they're probably ones like researcher, where you're paid to just dig through lots of information that might be susceptible. What the Americans call paralegals, you know, who do The kind of grunt legal work of uh, document discovery or drawing up simple contracts, that kind of thing. You might see something like medical diagnosis, uh, looking at the images from MRI scans or whatever. That's something that AI could be quite good about. It seems so far that the cognitive stuff is actually, for machines, quite easy. What's hard for them is the physical stuff we find really easy, like folding towels. It's actually quite hard to work out how you would make a robot that would do that.
2: Were there any that surprised you, just uh, apart from the tail folding? What was one that left out at you?
0: There was some I'm, I'm, I wonder about. There was a uh, study done in which people had ideas that, you know, you might see uh, a New York Times bestseller written by a machine at some point in the next 10 years. And in fact, we also had a piece recently where we got an AI to write a science section article. So we got a whole load of previous economist science section articles, fed it to an AI, and out came this stuff that sort of semantically sounds like The Economist, but it it made absolutely no sense at all. It it was kind of glorious.
2: That was an example where you felt that it was right up against the limits.
0: Yeah, I I think it does something interesting, but it doesn't do quite what you want it to do. It it sort of gives the appearance of what you want, but not the actual reality. So Hal's
2: looking confident that he's still employed for for the near future. It does suggest you're going to have to learn to work more with AI, though.
7: I think we definitely will have to work more there. I think just to briefly keep going on the writing thing, I the reason I don't think it'll happen is because I think there's no demand for it. I don't think anybody wants a book written by a machine. I just don't think they're interested. The other thing, and this is the idea that machines will start doing radiology and start looking at cancer scans and all that. They definitely will. But I don't think that means that there'll be less humans involved in that area. In fact, there'll probably be more because if the cost of getting a cancer scan comes down because of automation, probably we'll just get them all the time, just like we get our temperature taken.
2: The bigger social question that follows from this is, what is the impact on mere humans? There is also a big disruption to the value of of the human at work. Are you both in the same place in this sort of optimism, pessimism spectrum on that?
7: I mean, I tend to think that it's slightly overblown but that there are real worries. For starters, these things tend to happen relatively slowly. You know, it's it's quite unusual for new technologies to just completely erase an entire line of work over 5 years or something. But there will definitely be changes in the way things work. Like the radiologist example is a good one. You know, if you have machines that can look at cancer scans better than a human, if and when we do get that, the job of radiologist will change probably to be more about managing the data sets that it feeds into the machines.
2: But that sounds like you have to be the kind of human who either relishes that or can be trained at least to tolerate that. Are we perhaps a bit too optimistic about the ability of a lot of humans or desire of a lot of humans to work in that way?
0: We might be, and you can point to the historical examples when other things were automated when car manufacturing was automated when coal mining was automated you know you were left with with a bunch of people who had those skills and they weren't needed anymore and you can say rather grandly they should all retrain as programmers or radiologists or or, or whatever but it's it's hard so I don't want to dismiss that but I think all of history teaches us that that it it takes a while for new technologies to to displace old ones and sometimes it never quite happens.
2: Tim Cross and Hal Hodson thank you both very much.
3: Now, this was a topic you also explored while you were out in China. What did you do?
2: Well, one of the things I did, I think you were off talking about a book that you'd written about the future of technology. And I used the time, we were in a bookstore in Beijing, and I used the time to talk to a lot of the younger crowd who'd come to hear you and to exchange their thoughts about their feelings
6: regarding AI my name is Eric. I'm an English teacher. Um,
5: my name
2: is Young. I just graduated from UCL, University College London.
6: For me, I'm working on things related to English, which is language study. And people worry too much about if jobs like interpreters and translators because of the emergence of AI. But for me, I don't think it's something people should worry about because I don't think machines are that smart enough now.
2: To be honest, I was terrified by AI, because this is a trend. Whether you are afraid of that or not, you have to get used to that.
6: I mean, Chinese are less likely to cherish their privacy compared to American counterparts.
2: I think it's just a stage we have to go through.
6: Maybe we're just in this stage. We're transitioning into not ai to AI everywhere. And now I just feel like I don't want to be watched. What if the technology is so advanced that they know exactly I am, who I'm talking to? And just like a big brother, you don't know where where it is.
2: Some of our young Chinese audience there pondering the impact of AI.
3: Well, there's one more aspect of machines versus man that you've been exploring.
2: And that's the idea of the algorithm. How many algorithms are you aware of encountering in your daily life?
3: I suppose that I'm encountering them all the time as I search for things on the internet, but I don't know what one looks like. I just know that they do remarkably clever stuff.
2: I think I became more aware as we researched this. And to discuss that in a bit more detail, I interviewed Cathy O'Neill. Now, Cathy is author of Weapons of Math Destruction, and its subtitle is How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. And she joined me on the line from New York. Hi, Cathy. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. For listeners who might not be so familiar with them, can you explain first what an algorithm is and how it works? Sure. An algorithm is
1: um, something that uses historical information to make predictions about the future. So you're trying to use information about how people like you have shopped to determine who is going to buy something, or how people like you have done in their job to predict Who would be a good employee if you're looking at applications for jobs? On a daily basis, people probably interact with lots of algorithms that are invisible to them on the Internet. But I would argue that the algorithms that we have to worry about the most typically don't happen on an everyday basis. They're things like applying to college or applying for a job or getting a credit card or a an insurance policy. So there are things that happen to you every now and then that really matter and those are increasingly
2: algorithmic. And of course what worries people most is the idea that algorithms may be affecting their life, their choices, their options, that are biased. How much do we really know about how much an algorithm is biased when we encounter it? I was a data scientist myself building
1: algorithms and the way I saw it eventually was that I was choosing the winners and losers of a given system. That's what data scientists do actually. We just create these ranking algorithms. There's very little oversight. Since we're always looking for more and more data and sort of starved for the information we want, we end up doing things like, oh if you live in this zip code then you're low value. If you live in that zip code, you're high value. If you have a Mac, you're high value. If you have a PC, you're low value. And we make all sorts of decisions and that end up being sort of demographic splits along the old fashioned lines like gender, race, poverty, class. If you think about how those algorithms are all sort of similarly constructed, because all data scientists basically do the same thing. And if you also add to that how many times this happens to a given person, how often they come across algorithms that are deciding their future based on their demographics, then you realize that this is actually quite a sorting tool that works directly against the concept of social mobility. It's sort of saying, if people like you have been unlucky in the past, then we're going to make people like you Mm. unlucky
2: in the future. And how would you go about addressing that bias without taking out what an algorithm gives you in the first place, which is a greater degree of reliability. I mean, maybe algorithms just aren't social mobility's best friend. Well, okay, I just want to
1: examine that a little bit. Now, what do algorithms give us? And I would argue that the most obvious thing that algorithms give us is efficiency for the people using the algorithms, which is a different thing from saying they're good. Another example is recidivism risk algorithms being used by the court system that are often demographically based, so you're much more likely to get a high risk score and be kept in prison longer based on your class and your race. It's efficient for the court system. And by the way, it's also consistent, but it's maybe not fair. Can you give me
2: an example of a place perhaps where algorithms have created unexpected consequences?
1: I think most algorithms create unexpected consequences especially large-scale algorithms. If you want to look at a modern example, look at the Facebook newsfeed algorithm. Certainly, I don't think Zuckerberg, by his own account, was trying to create a world of echo chambers
2: and fake news, but I think that's what happened. And do you see any sort of light in the darkness here? Are we getting better at spotting damaging algorithms? I
1: mean, I think we're getting mildly better. When I started writing this book, I don't think anyone even imagined that algorithms could be imperfect. And now at least we're saying, hey, this algorithm doesn't seem to be working as intended. So that's a step towards um, improvement. I don't think we've really grappled with how difficult it is going to be to fix this problem.
2: And if I find myself dealing with my bank or perhaps a shopping website or just somewhere else where I suspect that an algorithm is being used unfairly or adversely against me, what should I do?
1: If you have a complaint that is outside the realm of credit scores, then we essentially have no laws. Usually when you have an algorithmic decision made about you, there's no one, to, there's no human being to appeal to. Just the other day, I was told by Lyft, which is the competitor with Uber, that they've decided I was too high risk a customer to, to use. And, you know, the the automatic appeal also came back negative within seconds. So there's, no, there's nobody in particular I can talk to about that. It is very typical of how these automated decisions make.
2: And are there any predictions that you have for 2018 in the way that we look at algorithms or the algorithms that are going to come under more pressure or scrutiny?
1: I predict that we're going to see a lot more fallout from algorithmic problems and mistakes and negative feedback loops, kind of along the lines of the VW um, emissions scandal. I think we're going to see things like that happening with algorithms. I don't think in 2018 we're going to have real ways of dealing with it yet. But in the next 10 years or so, I think we are going to develop techniques to actually hold algorithms accountable.
2: Kathy, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. And you've been doing some digging around to find out what's coming around the corner in 2018 and beyond. So who did you talk to? Well, I met
3: Shane Wall, who's the chief technology officer for HP Labs. HP Labs is a bit of a legend in Silicon Valley. Shane is tasked with predicting future social trends and then working out how the company should respond to those forces with technology.
8: We've grouped it into four main areas that we look at. One is mass urbanization, this move to highly dense cities what are constrained resources. The second big one, hyper-globalization, and that is just a world that's increasingly connected. Number three is just changing demographics. And then the last one is uh, accelerated innovation, the pace with which technology is changing.
3: So when you start to translate that into the stuff that you want to actually develop, what do you then interpret or extrapolate from this?
8: Well, we look at those problems and and then we target a set of things, like we need to change how we build our products and how we manufacture. We need to change and think about security in a different way. We need to think about the world differently and technology differently.
3: So one of the things that you do talk about, I think, at HP is something called bioconvergence. Explain what bioconvergence means to the uninitiated, such as myself.
8: Well, thanks to uh, the invention of 3D printing, we have the ability to print or manufacture things on a digital voxel scale. And we can then determine all the properties of that. With bioconvergence, what we're seeing is now the way we manufacture things starts to approach what happens from a biology standpoint and the ability to perhaps build things in a way similar to what nature does.
3: So, for example, can what what sorts of products might we see as a result of that?
8: Well, if you look, at, as an example, a tree, uh, and, a, and it forms a leaf, and that leaf then has uh, the ability to repel water as well as take in nutrients. We have the ability to build structures that can mimic a leaf. So now you can do things like build a resilient surface. Imagine being able to build a screen that's water-repellent and stain-repellent, similar to what nature does.
3: So, 2018, what are some of the... Developments we're likely to see that might be dramatic or surprising or significant.
8: Yeah, I, I think some of the changes that we're going to see in security in 18 are going to be uh, will be big. We've seen so many breaches over the last several years, and they've gotten bigger. But um, through the focus on a different cons- uh, security construct, one that focuses on cyber resiliency, one that mimics more the human body. So where we not only protect ourselves from, you know, security threats, we get better at detecting them, and then we create self-healing. Those networks we see coming out here in 18, we have them built into into products uh, coming out, and I think that'll be an interesting change, positive change.
3: By the end of the year then, do you think we're going to be safer or less safe
8: in terms of cybersecurity? Uh, I think we'll be safer, but it will always be a race. And it will be us trying to stay in front of the bad guys, essentially. And the more we focus on that, we're going to need to in order to survive. Now, from one lab to another, and
3: when you were in China, you got to see Huawei's labs, Tell us about them.
2: I guess when you go into one of these super-duper development labs, you almost expect to see things that, that come from science fiction. But probably what will have more impact is this coming technology of 5G that is just going to speed up so many things in all our lives.
4: My name is Joe Kelly. I'm the Vice President of Corporate Communications for here at Huawei. So we're here at 5G. And 5G doesn't exist today. It will do from 2020. Um, Today, if you have a 4G service, the highest speed possible is 100 megabits per second. That's pretty good. 5G will be 10 gigabits per second. That's fast enough to deliver a high-definition movie to your phone in one second. It's more than just a higher-speed broadband service. There's something called latency. Latency is delay on a line. On a 4G network, latency is 40 milliseconds. If we're calling each other or we're on the internet, you can't hear or feel 40 milliseconds. But if you're in a self-driving car and you're driving at 70 miles per hour and the network says, stop, the car will move 1.5 meters in 40 milliseconds. There may be a child standing in front of the car. We believe that the only safe level of latency for self-driving cars is one millisecond. And that's another key dynamic that we plan to deliver with 5G. The third area is the sheer number of connections that can be supported on a 5G network. If today we all have mobile phones, in the future we'll have mobile phones, connected homes, connected cars, connected devices of all kinds. You need a network infrastructure that's capable of supporting many, many more connections than 4G currently can. 5G will deliver 100 billion connections. So we can connect our valuables, you know, if you've got an expensive mountain bike, you can put a chip in the bike and then you can check where it is. If it gets lost, you can track it on on a map. 5G will give that sheer scale of connectivity. And that will be available worldwide from about 2020. So, the key big step that's going to happen in 2018 is that the industry will agree one single global standard for 5G. This is the industry gearing up for a new generation of technology, one that people haven't seen before.
2: Joe Kelly from Huawei there. Well, lastly, we get to an area of concern to everyone the future of healthcare. What are the developments happening in this year ahead that, that have fascinated you, Daniel?
3: Well, really starting in 2018, there's a new category of something called advanced medicines that's going to start to get regulatory approval and that seems to have the potential to revolutionise the way we treat it, some sorts of diseases.
2: And we have a go-to person who's specialised in this. Who did you talk to?
3: I talked to Natasha Loder, who's our healthcare correspondent. Natasha, you say that in 2018, historians will look back at this year as, in a sense, the beginning of a new era in medicine. That's a pretty big claim. How do you justify that?
5: I justify it because we're getting approvals of a whole new category of type of drugs. We've heard about the approval of a uh, a gene therapy for blindness called Lux-Turner. And we're going to be seeing more of that all throughout the year. And so, it's the arrival of the gene therapies. Another group of therapies called RNA drugs. That's also going to be happening this year, and some more CAR Ts, and then also lots more news about gene editing. So I kind of feel like twenty eighteen is the year where we'll be able to say all these different kinds of drug. Within what you would call advanced medicines, are all kind of starting to happen.
3: Is another way of thinking of these advanced medicines is that they operate upstream compared with traditional medicines.
5: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean. Um, you know, if you understand even a little bit about biology, you know, the genes inside our bodies code for all the kind of stuff that our bodies make. And so, you know, if you have, you know, anything goes wrong in your body, ultimately, there's likely to be some genetic component to it. If sometimes with genetic diseases, it's the entire reason. I mean, things like hemophilia, Huntington's, these are all genetic diseases and then many of the diseases that just just regular uh, other diseases also have a strong genetic component and so can be addressed upstream so instead of correcting the disease after it's kind of happened you can perhaps go to the genes and actually upstream of the problem you can create a drug or a treatment that will correct that.
3: So let's look at some of these treatments in a bit more detail so you mentioned RNAi. That's right. What exactly is that and how does it work?
5: It's quite a complicated technology, but the way to imagine it is that you are introducing a piece of information into the cell that essentially stops the transmission of information. So what happens when your body is using genes to create proteins in the body, it sends these messengers through the cell. So the DNA says, I'd like you to manufacture this protein. And it sends a little messenger that sort of sends through the cell to do that. Now, essentially, these RNA drugs Uh, Sort of ambush that message and stop it from happening. So, if you, for example, were born with a genetic disease, one of the ones that's being worked on is amyloidosis, which is where an abnormal protein builds up in the cell. If that happens, you prevent those proteins from building up by interfering with that message. Then the disease simply doesn't happen. And so that's the idea behind these RNA drugs: is you you essentially you send a little signal into the cell that will interfere with that.
3: So. There's that. There's gene therapy proper. But the gene therapy has been kind of talked about for a long time. So what, what, what's happening now that makes this suddenly uh, more imminent or more impactful? Why is this the beginning of the era as opposed to five years ago, 10 years ago or five years time?
5: You know, 20 years ago, everyone got terribly excited about gene therapy and then someone died on a trial and they realised that the vectors, the viruses that they were using, weren't weren't safe. So the whole field went into sort of a, a bit of a decline for 10 or 20 years and it wasn't until safer vectors were found and identified and tested and went through clinical trials. The field sort of got its mojo back a bit. You know, what's happening now is that we're actually getting treatments that have gone through clinical trials and that are now reaching the approval stage. You know, we had this gene therapy, Lux Turner, just approved from Spark Therapeutics. And this really, you know, you should expect to see lots more gene therapies arriving this year. It's happening. And the reason we're saying it's happening now is you can look at all the clinical trials that are going on, whether it's for haemophilia or sickle cell disease, you can see they're happening, you can see the clinical results, and you know, and you can be fairly confident that they're going to go to the FDA for approval. That would be my expectation. You know, I'm not going to <laughs> not going to tell you when gene therapy is going to be available at your local doctor's surgery, but maybe in decades to come, you could imagine that would be the case.
3: Well, I think you've set our expectations a little bit more on the distant horizon there, but plenty for you to track in 2018. Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you.
2: How do you think that technological advances will hit our lives, for better or worse, over the year ahead and beyond? Do let us know. You can email us radio@economist.com or you can tweet us at economist radio. Daniel and I would be very pleased to hear from all of you. And that's it for this special edition of Economist Radio with me, Anne McElvoy.
3: And me, Daniel Franklin.
2: Until then, though, you can enjoy all of our audio offerings on Economist Radio. We're published five days a week, Monday through Friday. But before we go, we have one last treat for you. We've asked William Seekhart, founder of the Forward Prize for Poetry and author of The Poetry Pharmacy, to choose a verse he feels reflects the themes of our episode and he's kindly agreed to play us out with Come to the Edge by Christopher Logue.
3: Come to the edge. We might fall. Come to the edge. It's too high. Come to the edge. And they came,
2: and he pushed, and they flew.
0: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business...